getting back uh, down somewhere near the trailhead, jumping in for my daily uh, daily bath in a creek or stream, usually before I got back to my van, just so I could be, uh, I always told myself, you know, one or two minutes of pain and cold water is, is worth it for 24 hours of cleanliness, so... Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, today's episode, we're actually talking to a veteran of the show, Brian Asher. He was on the episode 634 talking about how he has traveled to every country in the world. I definitely encourage you to check that out, and that's in the show notes if you want a quick link to that, uh, because he works as a teacher uh, throughout the year. So he teaches at the high school he actually graduated from, goes out in the summers and on breaks, or takes a year off of teaching, and travels the world and comes back and brings all that knowledge, all that experience to the classroom. I absolutely love that. And another cool thing is during the pandemic, he decided to go to Mexico, uh, where he had a little bit more wiggle room with, with budget and had some time, of course, like we all did. And he traveled to all 32 states within Mexico, including a couple countries in Central America. And he, of course, he did it safely. Of course, he did it uh, in, in a very interesting way, a very cool way. Uh, but Brian is one of those people who's making it happen. And by the way, he was teaching the whole time too. He would teach during the day and explore uh, when he got off working on the weekends, just making it happen. So if you're out there and you're saying, you know, I don't think I can make my adventures happen. Well, you know, I, I guarantee there's a way that you could if you start saying instead of I can't do this, how can I make this happen? How can I fit this into my life? How can I make this work for my budget? I would say reach out to Brian. He, he, he's been able to figure it out. I'm always inspired when we talk to him, so I'm excited to get into this episode. But before we jump in, I did want to take a minute to draw your attention to a podcast that I think you might enjoy. Uh, when it comes to traveling, one thing you have to do is get places, and a great resource for that is Expedia. The show Out Travel the System is brought to us by Expedia, and it's a show that's all about inspiring you and to inform you about how to travel smarter, stories of travel. Uh, it could be in anything from building a bucket list out to how to take concrete steps to make your next trip a reality. And it does a great job of finding people who are incredibly passionate about travel, uh, including folks like Brian who want to travel to every country in the world, or giving voices to people who are in the destinations that we often go just to hear what their point of views are. So if you don't mind, I'd love if you took a moment to pull up that show, subscribe, download a po couple podcast episodes for later, and give it a listen. Uh, Brian is always inspiring me to travel, and I guarantee that I'll Travel the System can help inspire you as well. All right, let's get into Brian's episode. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Yes, and thank you for joining us from your classroom. That is that is <laughs> dedication. That is efficient use of your time as well. Yeah, I saw the sign-up spots, and they were all in the middle of the day. And I'm like, oh, what day can I bring my lunch and be here from 11 to 12.20 and do three classes before and three after and, and be on the podcast here during my lunch break. So glad to glad to work it out. Yeah. And now are you at the same school you were the last time we talked? Yeah. Yeah. I've been at Rio Americano High School here in Sacramento where I graduated from actually um, just a few years now, a little ways back. And uh, I'm teaching with former colleagues of mine who I still call Mr. Blenner or Mr. Kasatsa. And now they're 
tell me, call me by my first name. So I'm at the same high school I graduated from and uh, here in Sacramento, California. Oh my God, Brian, I, I, I got to ask because I, I'm, you know, I, I often go back home or back to where I'm from, grew up and, you know, that seems so, can be so, you know, not frowned upon, but it's, you know, there's a lot of our, our generation that is not doing that at all. For you, how wild is it? I might have asked you this the first time, but to be go to go back home, having seen all this, are you just do you constantly see home through new lenses, or or how do you process that difference? Uh, it's kind of a reverse reverse culture shock every time I come <laughs> yeah. home from being abroad. And I mean, the most staggering example was when I took the school year off two years ago and went to exactly hundred countries in that self created sabbatical year, and then came home and. Felt completely like a fish out of water, completely oh my, I like can't a foreigner in my own country and own state and own school and coming back to the same classroom, you know, where I had the year before, two years before was, uh, was weird, very weird, awkward, uh, didn't like it at first, but you, you come back with new eyes and, um, clearly you are grateful for the things that you have here. I, you know, purified water. I, it was lost in translation. I was at borders. I was you know, sweating my guts out, going across the hair on buses. And when you come back and see uh, you know, 200 cereals in the supermarket, you can't quite feel the same. So, Brian, that is, I can't honestly imagine. And, and then having to talk to people and say, oh, how, how was your year? And it's like, <laughs> uh, I don't know where to start. I saw the whole world almost, you know, a hundred, you, you're, you're almost like an astronaut that went and, and walked on the moon and came back home and like went to the same restaurant three weeks later. It's like, I don't even know what to tell you. It was just, yeah. it's what life is. It's, that's incredible. I find that the most incredible aspect of what you do. It's, it's amazing. The, the kind of the contrast between, you know, remote villages in, in West Africa to suburban life in Sacramento, California. It's uh could not be more different. And uh, there's blessings and good things about both sides. And I try to take the positives and, and, you know, incorporate that into my life and in my classes I teach as well. Now, so so that year you voluntarily took off and, and did that. Um, last year, you pretty much a calendar year from, from now, uh, that, that wasn't voluntary. We all know what happened, <laughs> the, the pandemic. And for you, a world traveler, what went through your mind initially? And how, how did you start processing the reality of what was going on? Sure. Yeah, I remember it really well. Uh, March, a year ago, March here, having a, a basically standing round of ovation, or standing a round of applause from about 36 freshmen wow. in my Spanish one class. And uh, they were like, woohoo, long spring break, you know? And little did we know we'd be out for 12 months and uh, that they would be desperately missing their friends probably a month or two later. So, um, that being said, obviously the last uh, two months of the last year were online and I decided to sell my Camry and, and buy a Toyota Sienna minivan and said, you know, if I need to be distant from people, I'm going to do it in some of the most beautiful places uh, in the western part of the U.S. And so I think I summited about 80 or 90 peaks and went all over the national parks in Washington and Oregon and Montana, Wyoming, Tetons, Wind River Range, North Cascades. Um, you know, I was everywhere all summer and was still enjoying the, the quote unquote van life, even though it was the teacher budget version of van life. There's no, uh, $50,000 sprinter vans involved. It was a <laughs> 2004 Toyota Sienna. So <laughs> with a $50, you know, effort of a sleeping platform, we put in the back and one or two nights with my next door neighbor and, uh, came back in August, grabbed my textbooks, uh, 
four collared shirts and headed back out on the road to teach remotely from you know tiny houses of friends in Salt Lake to uh, you know wherever I could find Wi-Fi along the way and would basically be connected online from uh, my school hours of which were nine to three this year instead of eight to three when we were remote and then would buzz back out and sleep in the van or summit a 14er in the uh, afternoon and come back in and do it again the next day. <laughs> That's an episode in itself. Good <laughs> gracious. That is awesome. Now, let me ask you this. I, I, I didn't realize you were in a minivan. I've, <laughs> I've, I've never van lifed. I, I have a truck and I just sleep in the back or I camp most of the time. I can usually, and I have a, I had a topper where I would just lay in the back. That was super simple. My new truck does not have a topper and I need one. But anyway, I've always thought a minivan would make a great camper van because it's fuel efficient. There's so much room. You can take the seats out. And it's, like you said, like a tenth of the price of these Sprinter vans. Mm -hmm. did, did it work for you for those reasons? Uh, it was incredible. I absolutely loved it. It was my uh, budget test run of how van life would be. And uh, basically, you know, bought it for six or 7,000. I sold my Camry for six or 7,000. So it's a straight swap, uh, 50 50 bucks. And maybe one night later after some Home Depot and work with my neighbor, had a platform that folded up, was elevated for room for gear underneath it and uh, put a mattress on top and was was good to go. Had room for the cooler, room for a bike, room for all my teaching stuff, hiking, outdoor gear. And uh, didn't call attention to people. You know, it's not big. It doesn't get eight miles a gallon. And um, absolutely loved it. I, if I sold it tomorrow after, you know, for 13, 14 months of having it, I would be so satisfied. And, um, you know, that I get a couple of looks from students when I drive into campus now with a minivan are, are the least of my concerns. So <laughs> I, I think it's just the stigma of a minivan. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's my wife refuses to get one, even though we have a couple of kids now. Um, but I am like, I'm getting one for me just because <laughs> it calls everything I'll ever need. You can fit a decent amount of lumber in there. And yeah. they're so inexpensive compared to these Sprinter vans that are, like you said, get eight miles a gallon or draw so much attention to them. You can just mm -hmm. fly under the radar and for so much less expense. I think it's a great idea. That's totally my style and totally the style of the Adventure Sports Podcast. But um, So you took this van into Mexico, to every state of Mexico. And people don't realize, you know, Mexico is, uh, the, the official name of Mexico is the United Mexican States, you know, similar to the United States, uh, meaning there's a lot of different states within it, 32 that you mentioned. Did, were you aware of this beforehand? And, and, and when did that idea come about during the pandemic? Sure, sure. I'll just clarify just one thing, too, that um, the land border has actually been closed the whole time for the pandemic. And so the van life was June, July, August, and then the fall I was teaching, then I had to come back home. And uh, in November, when I got snowed on in Yosemite, that was like, all right, about the last I can handle here. If it's getting a little cold in the van, and I flew down with um, friends that were here in the U.S. that were climbing that are actually planning an expedition for Denali. And I took the same flight with them down to Puebla, Mexico, down to Mexico City, because um, the land border was closed. I would have drove, but I had to fly. And so I flew down to Mexico City and then went down to Puebla. Imagine I would stay for a couple of weeks and ended up staying for the entire rest of the uh, time I was teaching remote, which was the next four months in, uh, in Puebla, kind of based out of Puebla, and then had uh, 
visited already about 25 of the 32 states in Mexico. Um, when I lived in Mexico before, I lived there twice before. And so I got to finish the, uh, one of my goals in life was to visit all 50 states and all 32 states in Mexico. And so I got to visit those last seven and then um, actually went to about 15 or 20 other ones for the second, third or fourth time. And uh, I've loved not just going to places as I asked my students, who's been somewhere in Mexico besides Baja? Vallarta, Cancun, Acapulco, and usually most hands go down, and I avoid those places like a plague and enjoy going to places that are <laughs> more local and uh, more off the radar for foreigners, and that prices are five times cheaper than a uh, Airbnb in Cabo or Vallarta would be, and, and I love it. I speak Spanish. I teach Spanish, so um, Mexico is a second home for me. So cool. Oh, my gosh. What what an adventure. Well, well tell us about... Tell us about someone that, you know, maybe has never been to Mexico or has the view of Mexico through the, the, the lens of, of media or mu- movies and shows. What What is the real Mexico like and what, what kind of variation is there among the climate, among the people, among what to expect? Uh, I don't know if that's even easy to summarize, but y- you understand the, the vastness of the U.S. And I can only imagine Mexico is similar and how different sure. it can be. Oh, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite countries in the world easily. I've lived there three times. Um, I love, I share about it every day in class. So I'll try to take that one on for you. Um, I would say Mexico, what we hear about is beach resorts where you put on a bracelet and you get all you can eat and drink. It is maybe the quarter or fifth of the country that now lives in the U.S. that's come up here for economical reasons. And it's narcotraficantes or drug trafficking uh, with states maybe like Chihuahua or Sinaloa that you've heard about, and it's telenovelas. Maybe it's something along those lines of the stereotypes. And, um, you know, all stereotypes have some parts of a truth to them. But when you go down, uh, I absolutely love it. I lived in Guadalajara, which is the second biggest city. Puebla is about the fifth biggest city. And uh, number one, the people. The people are absolutely fabulous, absolutely um, one of the, some of the friendliest people I've ever been among. They value relationships and helping you and laughing and family um, slightly more than a lot of economies and countries are maybe geared into getting things done, money, um, doing my job, going home, uh, closing my door, locking my door, watching TV on a flat screen TV. There's just such a sense of community when you're there. I've felt so well received everywhere in Mexico. So um, people will say the people, but that's the reason is they value relationships and will stop what they're doing, be late for work, um, help you, take you by the hand, show you where something is. Number one, people are absolutely fantastic. Um, Number two, for me, the country is so varied. It's so varied. You have the north, kind of the deserty, maybe the more um, isolated beaches in Baja, California. You've got the heart of Mexico where there are these magical towns. They're called Pueblos Magicos. They're all over the country, but the heart of Mexico has a ton. I think I've visited maybe 50 of the 150 or so magical towns or these little pueblos that are just a joy to walk around with often cobblestone streets. There might be waterfalls or different geographical features outside of town. The government's pumped money into making them appealing. They have markets, they have festivals, they have dancing, they have traditions that are still there. And then the heart of Mexico is high. So you get some of the biggest peaks in North America. I actually just made a video on climbing the two highest peaks in um, Mexico, which are Itzda Siwapil at 17,000 feet and Orizaba at 18,000 feet, which are almost a mile higher than Mount Whitney, which, you know, most people don't think of Mexico being high or mountainous, but 
um, you know, you've got Mexico City and Puebla at 7,000 feet. So my buddies that mm-hmm. live there, they go to Aconcagua, they go to Denali, they don't even need to acclimate very much because they're at 7,000 every day. And they go out and hike these peaks that are 17, 18,000 feet on a monthly basis. And so they eliminate the acclimatization period to have to train your body for you know, less oxygen. So I, the heart of Mexico is absolutely fabulous. The south is kind of more jungly. Um, you have different ruins, maybe Palenque or Chichen Itza, or you know, some of these Mayan ruins are out there that you might have heard of before. And it's, it's full of so much history. It maintains its culture. You don't see box stores nearly as much as you do in the U.S. Um, when you're there, I walked out from my friend's places and had 30 options for lunch, for street food, for 2 to $4 every day. Um, you can get a place for $200 a month if you want to stay there in a non-touristy area like where I was in Puebla. Um, I absolutely love the country. It's as short as flying from, from, for me to fly to your house in, in Florida. That's going to get me everywhere in the country of Mexico. It's not far, and it's not that expensive to get to. And uh, the culture and the, the music, the people, the food, it's, I love it. I absolutely love it when I'm down there. I, I just tell my students and people to ask me on a daily basis, like, where would you recommend going to Mexico? And, I mean, put out a name like Oaxaca in southern Mexico is incredible. Guanajuato with these streets that go in and out of kind of this university town with all these tunnels. Um, San Cristobal de las Casas in southern Mexico has these amazing churches. I mean, Guadalajara is the home of mariachi and tequila and a lot of the most, like, kind of traditional Mexican things. Mexico City is one of the biggest cities in the world, all kinds of culture and museums i mean there's there's a lot you can do away from the beaches that's <laughs> what i always try to remind people well tell us about how you uh h- how you planned your route and what were some of the things you were trying to see while you were in these states and maybe a story or two of of of, of, of a surprising positive or a surprising thing you didn't realize you were going to come across sure yeah so i lived in guadalajara um a few years back when I was teaching English. And so the first time I was there, I visited several of the states near Guadalajara. And the second time I drove my car down and uh, was able to be there and actually kind of became real involved in running. And so um, basically on a monthly basis, we go and they'd have a weekend package trip for maybe $40, $50, like amazingly cheap, you know, maybe eight or 10 years back now um, to go up and run marathons. So I kind of got known as the uh, Guerito is a word in Spanish that means like the light skinned guy, which I know we don't use kind of nicknames like that too much in the US, but in Mexico, like nicknames are very common among people. And so I was pretty much the only foreigner. And uh, we go up and, and run different races and we'd go all over the country. And I'll, I'll put one out as an example I talked about in class today. Um, the Rada Muri had become famous for running distances in the Copper Canyon, which is located in Chihuahua. It's called the Barranca de Cobre, and it's kind of the Mexican version of the Grand Canyon. It's this huge canyon in northern Mexico. And so I'd been training a lot, and the distances were, I think it was 70K and 100K. And so I signed up for the 70K race, which um, is, what, about 45 miles or so, somewhere about there. And so went up on a bus trip with a big group in the middle of the Copper Canyon, real hard to get to, real remote. And uh, you're out there, and there's a nice documentary on Netflix about Lorena right now, which came out with a, a young woman that's winning races all over the world. And they have their traditional outfits on. It's, it's dresses. The women want in dresses, the men kind of in these white uh, kind of one-piece outfits that often have kind of headbands and things that they wear. And they have 
huaraches, which are sandals that are made out of rubber. And a lot of the runners, uh, obviously from Mexico and other countries that run this, have lots of gear and you know running vests and belts and clearly running shoes. And a lot of the locals um, in the Copper Canyon still run with huaraches, which are these sandals that are often made out of rubber, even from tires and things in the community. And they're um, kind of like some of the Kenyans in the more remote part of Kenya have just grown up you know, running all the time. And so there I am on the starting line and I'm looking at and at the time, now there's a few more foreigners, but at the time, just a handful of foreigners, maybe like 40 or 50% Mexicans from other parts and about 40 or 50% um, Tarahumara or Rada Muri. Uh, is the name of their local language that are uh, traditionally dressed and you're on the line with people that, you know, you just know have lived such a different lifestyle than you have and spanish isn't even their first language you might speak i might speak spanish better than they do um but when you start going you know you're thinking oh you know i've trained better i have more gear but they're incredible incredible runners you know i was somewhere in the middle of the top at the end of the race but had plenty you know local people beat me male and female runners beat me and uh to see the copper canyon in one day which is almost like running rim to rim to rim or something is an example in the grand canyon but much more adventurous without you know all these strava routes or people that do it on a daily basis or you know water fill-ups that there's lots of information on the grand canyon there's not that much uh in, in the time i ran it about running in the copper canyon and uh, that sticks out as one of the most memorable days clearly difficult whenever you kind of suffer or have something that's challenging, you tend to remember it, but also running alongside all these Radamuri runners in their traditional, um, whether it's vests or um, dresses or outfits, um, and trying to like strike up conversations in Spanish with them along the day. That was that was one of my more memorable days that I've ever had living in Mexico. What what an experience. And to to know that things were going on, how how were they handling the pandemic, would you say, compared to the US in the sense of openness or, or willingness to to do things like that? So as far as Mexico to travel with the pandemic, um, it is one of the easiest countries to get into right now in the whole world, um, which has been very convenient for me being down there a lot this last year. And uh, lots of countries have negative tests or are completely closed off. Mexico's basically welcomed visitors with open arms the entire last year. And uh, as far as getting to see people, there's all different levels of kind of how comfortable people are. They're, they're definitely behind the U.S. on vaccinating people. Right now, for example, my friends um, have come up to the U.S., some of them, and even done their vaccinations here because it would still be another 10 months or a year to get vaccinated there. But in, in general, people have such a sense of community there that uh, – I would say people have been more laxed down there than they were here, from my experience. Um, I think a lot of Americans tend to, you know, come in their own homes and kind of, you know, fence themselves off a little bit. And for better or for worse, um, I felt like it was more laxed and a little bit more easygoing um, when I've been down in Mexico the last year. Well, well, tell us about, um, would you go out from where you were staying in Mexico and do like road trips as well? Or was it kind of go out for the day, come back, um, and then relocate maybe where your home base was? How, how did that work? Sure. Yeah. Puebla is an incredible home base. It's um, about two hours southeast of Mexico City. And so I would teach pretty much Monday through Friday and be there in Puebla and then go out on the weekends. Um with friends or my girlfriend as well lives in Puebla and so um, would go out on the weekends and explore different parts of the country and um, you know it's amazing Sacramento's home base when I'm in the U.S. it's amazing what you can get to I know you've 
spent time in, in Yosemite and the Sierras and the national parks, Death Valley. It's amazing what you can get to in a weekend if you put your mind to it. Um, like Jason Hardrath and different people, I think, uh, put me to shame on that for what you can get to in a weekend. Oh, that are, gosh, yeah. So, They'll drive 20 hours. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, some people are, you know, most people at my school think I'm crazy that I drive three to eight hours on the weekend. Some people like Jason will drive 10 or 20. And uh, so I just took that same mindset, you know, Friday to Sunday, can I max it out? And anything within eight or 10 hours was fair game. So uh, getting down to Oaxaca is incredibly beautiful. It's one of the most just kind of culturally rich towns in Mexico. That's about four or five hours southeast. Um, Going up to an area called San Luis Potosí is a state that's not super famous, but has a really pretty area with um, just 10 or 12 of the biggest waterfalls in the whole country. Uh, I went over to Michoacán and Jalisco, which are two of the most traditional states where I used to live in Guadalajara a few years back um, to check out a lot of these pueblos mágicos. One of the, I think you had a podcast visitor on talking about the migration, right, of the uh, monarch butterflies? Yes, Benjamin Jordan recently, he flew from the Mexican border to the Canadian border um, pretty much via the Rocky Mountains, but essentially the path of the monarchs, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I I listened to your episode, and that was, oh, by the way, I I I always download, and when I'm running or driving on these road trips, it's fun to be inspired, especially if I'm on my own, have some uh, adventure sports podcast episodes downloaded are, are always nice to have. So thank you for different guests on. It's, it's one of my favorite things to listen to. So thanks for, for producing those. I remember hearing the one about the monarch butterflies. I was like, Oh, if I'm on again with Mason, I'll have to, uh, to mention this. So I drove up, um, with my girlfriend and we drove, who was about eight hours, maybe seven or eight hours. And then drove up to see um, the monarchs while they were still there in this little town in Michoacan. And uh, they have a reserve there where they are everywhere. So when I was hearing the uh, podcast about him following the flight of the monarchs, I got to see where they spend their winter and have always wanted to do it. And um, this was the year to be able to check it out since I was down there. So we saw, I think it's about 150 million monarchs often that come down and nestle in the trees there. And they can cover the the bark and the branches and everything that where you can't even barely see the tree when it's cold, they're staying on the tree. And luckily, um, the day that we were there in the reserve, it was fairly warm and it was getting close to when they were going to start migrating north and they were flying and they were everywhere. They were every, it felt like you were in a movie, you know, it felt like you were in a, like an animated dream world because when we got up to the certain area there, it's about nine, 10,000 feet. It's pretty high up in the, in the hills outside of this little town in Michoacan. And all of a sudden you're among millions of butterflies. They're just fluttering around and, uh, it, it felt like I was dreaming. It was hard to compare to reality in real in real life, but it was incredible to see them there um, in kind of their home wintering spot and just millions and millions of them there in Michoacan, high up in the hills. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. <laughs> That is awesome. I mean, I can't even imagine what that actually is like in person, you know? And, and so was, was it busy? Was that a popular thing? Or, or did y'all have kind of it, not to yourselves, but was it as busy as you expected? I expected it to be even more busy. I was amazed that uh, it was maybe a two-mile hike up from the parking lot. The entrance fee was uh, 
like a lot of things in Mexico are, if you're not at a beach, very reasonable. I think it was 60 pesos or 60 pesos or about $3 to get into the reserve. And uh, we hiked up two miles. And then after, you know, your 40 minute hike or so, you're, you're up there and there were maybe 50 to 100 people there during like the two hours that we were with all the butterflies. So um, in my mind, that's not a lot of people at all for one of the more interesting migrations and kind of, you know, like natural phenomenons in the world to have I mean, you could easily find a place where you could sit there and enjoy it on your own and not uh, really feel like you were around other people. So I was amazed at how few people that were there on a beautiful Saturday weekend day in early March here, um, which was kind of ideal peak season before they started flying north. That is awesome. I'm sure it was hard every day to to teach without just talking about everything you were experiencing <laughs> just just that that's it that's all you're going to share just because you saw so much <laughs> how did you find balancing work and, and teaching all that what what did that look like how much time did that allow you to explore sure yeah when i was in my van um in the fall i would make a point especially because i was often on mountain time and class started at 9 a.m so that meant 10 a.m um if i was mountain time 9 a.m here in california i would get my stuff done in the morning because maybe I could have more time to do, I think I did uh, maybe 30 14ers when I was out there in Colorado while teaching full-time this oh, fall. Gosh, geez, <laughs> so, 30. And actually, uh, this summer, finished up my last few to have summited all 54, 58, depending on what list you use, of the 14ers. So I uh, finished that goal in the summer and then went back and did about 30 of them in the fall while staying um, in my van outside of Buena Vista, Colorado, where I worked for three summers as a backpacking guide and would go in and teach at a, uh, a friend's art studio during the day and then would go back out in Peak Mountains in the afternoon. So that was one example. I was there with my friend Dave for about three weeks teaching in his art studio, nice enough to let me use it during the day. He'd have clients and people come in and do pottery and things in the evenings. And by that time, I'd you know be uh, running off of a summit there <laughs> one of the uh, 14ers that are close by, maybe it was Albert or Massive or La Plata or Huron, or um, there's a lot right near Buena Vista, Yale, Harvard, like the collegiate peaks are right there. So um, I would uh, work hard in the morning and then, you know, get through all my classes. And then when three o'clock or four o'clock hit, if I was on mountain time, would have some kind of adventure planned pretty much every day, every once in a while a day off. But I don't know. I was too excited, too high on life. Like I guess a lot of your guests probably are to want to take time off when I, you know, I could be called back into class any month. Is kind of how I looked at it. So I would, uh, you know, for example, be teaching in the studio, ready to go, changing clothes, on my way out to the trailhead at the Denny Creek Trailhead for Mount Yale, for example, which is right outside of Buena Vista. And uh, you know, I drive up at 4:30. I'd be there. I'd be you know, power hiking it up and I'd be trail run. I'll be up there for sunset, taking in the views at sunset. And then I'd be trail running down in the dark with a headlamp, getting back, uh, down somewhere near the trailhead, jumping in for my daily, uh, daily bath in a creek or stream. Usually before I got back to my van, just so I could be, uh, I always told myself, you know, one or two minutes of pain and cold water is, is worth it for 24 hours of cleanliness. So, um, would jump somewhere into some kind of water source and then, uh, camp out in the national forest or somewhere where I could and come back in and teach at a Dave's pottery studio, for example, the next day and repeated that for basically 20 or 30 days in Colorado to, uh, 
gets up to about 25 or 30 of the 14ers, um, not for the first time, but this time for the second time around. Just, just, just squeezing the marrow out of life. <laughs> what you're doing, making the absolute most of a of a bad situation in a lot of ways. Uh, mm-hmm. You see opportunity in it. Sounds like. Yeah, I just I saw, let's say the other hundred staff at my school, and there's one or two that I kind of knew were outdoor people or doing a little bit of this, and just kind of pictured sitting at home, isolated in the apartment that I uh, share here, and in Sacramento, or I pictured being out and being some of the most beautiful places and recording it and having the chance to maybe make some videos to upload for YouTube and using my classes. And, you know, I teach high school Spanish, but they know that I talk about the outdoors and the healthy lifestyle. And, you know, I got 2000 students at my high school, 160 of them walk through my class or connect to Zoom every day. And if I can, uh, you know, help to help, have, help to have them realize how much the outdoors and travel has given me a breath of fresh air, helped me through um, depression and hardship after losing my dad and my brother within a year and how it's really given me a new a new fire for life when I was at my lowest. Um, if I can help a few of them that have been, you know, depressed this year or struggling, and a lot of them have been, you know, um, by being isolated so long, if I could, you know, spark an interest, inspire a few of them, um, that's that's worth it for me. So I've been trying to, to live it, not just talk about it. Well, that's very, uh, very admirable and very true that the outdoors are healing. I, I was just walking through the woods here in Florida just last weekend, and it was just, j- just so like you can feel it. You can feel it yourself. Just being, it sounds dramatic, but being healed in a way or being fulfilled, f- filled with with joy, filled with uh, contentment and just peace and. Uh, you know, it's, it's some people, many people, unfortunately don't even know that sensation, um, don't have that thing and don't realize nature and being outdoors and away from screens can do that for us. Uh, you're definitely a prime example of, of, of getting that done and encouraging folks to do it. Is it, do you see the effect on some of your students? Oh yeah. I have them, you know, ask me about different hikes that I've done. Um, I had one come the other day and asked me about what websites I use to plan and like, if I have my roads put po- my routes posted on Strava and I have ones that I actually hike with once they're former students, <laughs> when they, you know, are graduated and we go out, I teach near Tahoe together. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to be able to interact with them, the cross country and the track kids here at the school. You know, sometimes I'll go out and run with them after school. So they're already, you know, geared into shorter races. But when I tell them about trails or running across the Grand Canyon, you can see their eyes light up about some of these different bigger challenges. Um, and so, yeah, we talk about it in class all the time. And and you're you're saying about how, you know, the outdoors cures. We were just walking, watching the uh, documentary on, I think it was Amazon Prime the other day about hiking the John Muir Trail, which is, uh, you know, one of the most beautiful, one of the most famous trails in the world here from Yosemite to Mount Whitney. And I love, I love the quote that says, um, they had a lot of John Muir quotes kind of sprinkled in the documentary. It said, even the sick should try these so-called dangerous passes, mountain passes, because for every unfortunate they kill, they cure a thousand. And wow. I, I love that one. We paused it when we watched it the other night on, uh, on the documentary is, um, for me, when my when my brother passed and I was really really low and it was sudden and it was uh, really shocking and brought me back from Latin America, um, 
I went out and, and visited the rest of the 50 states um, shortly after he passed. That was the most healing thing and helpful thing for me. And he had been to, to 48 and was just missing Alaska and Hawaii. And I had been to 32. And so I wanted to finish that in his honor and drove all the way up to <laughs> southwestern Alaska there and you know, drove all the way across to Maine and visited the northern part of the U.S. and um, did it, of course, on a budget camping in a not a van, but a small. I just slept in the front seat of the car, which is really uncomfortable. But I guess when I was 26, I just didn't care and was going to do it anyway. <laughs> I love it. I love it, though. But it uh, happened. Yeah, yeah, just that time alone with your thoughts where we're constantly bombarded or addicted for some people, I feel like, with screens, you know, and the, the hand reaches out for the phone like it was another piece of popcorn or something, you know, without thinking about it. And so, like you mentioned, I mean, just getting outdoors uh, wherever you are, if you're in Florida or in California or Mexico, wherever you're living, um, for some of that alone, quiet, running, hiking, biking, walking your neighborhood, whatever it is, it's just, that's how I start every day in the morning. It's kind of like, I feel like it's my church, you know, <laughs> sometimes I go to a physical church, but sometimes, and you know, I'm on a trail near, near Yosemite or Tahoe or right here in Sacramento. And it's, it's, it's healing and, and, you know, gets your, your thought right on track and your life kind of back in order. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's really healing. It's been healing for me all the way along. Ryan, that's, that is awesome. And I, and I loved just how, how you made it happen and the inspiration behind it. Um, well, well, tell us about this adventure in Mexico when it, uh, finally came to an end, you, you visited the remaining states. Uh, did, did you end it, you know, when that happened or did you end it, uh, when you had to go back to the classroom? Sure. Yes. I, I went down, um, in mid November with these friends who are mountain climbers and I didn't know how long I'd be there. So Thanksgiving break, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go down. And I rented a car and went through the Southern States. I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen, um, Cancun's probably the most famous place in Mexico for a lot of people, but I got a flight there immediately uh, bolted out of Cancun because <laughs> I didn't want to go to Cancun. But I saw Quintana Roo, Yucatan, Campeche, uh, Tabasco, and a few of the last states in the south there that I'd never seen. And so I was able to to reach that goal over Thanksgiving break because I, I pictured being in Mexico for three weeks and uh, stayed, um, met a girl who's now my girlfriend down there and um, ended up staying, have friends are mountain climbers. We go out on the weekends and hike, hike peaks and visit new towns. And I, I, you know, like you said, kind of try to get every ounce out of it. So I waited until, uh, I think it was Tuesday, uh, before the Monday that everyone was almost positive we were going to start school, but I was still holding out. And then when the governor here in California announced that, um, we had reached the tier of, I think it was below 12 cases per 100,000 or something like that of COVID. And that, in fact, yes, you know, all public schools, San Juan Unified, where I'm in Sacramento, would be coming back literally that hour. I bought my plane ticket home for the next day and uh, had, what, Thursday and Friday, basically, to set up my classroom and was in Mexico absolutely as long as I could. Um, loved it down there and was sad to um, leave the freedom and flexibility, online teaching and friends and everything from down there, but also happy as I think any teacher would tell you, we don't sign up to talk to black boxes on Zoom. You know, we sign up to be teachers to have an impact on on young people and inspire them and face-to-face uh, -face in the classroom, even with masks on, is supremely more effective than, um, 
you know, <laughs> asking people to please volunteer on Zoom when you're not sure if they're even there. So mm-hmm. I've I've enjoyed the getting to know my kids the last two months has been or a month and a half or so has been has been really nice. And uh yeah, we're laughing, we're having a good time, we're able to do games or competitions in class and um yeah, you know, it's been a long year for all of them. So I feel for them and I've tried to make class interesting and engaging and I love my job in person way more than I do online, but the flexibility that's given me in the last year has been has been very unique as a teacher. Now that you're back in the classroom and in teaching's more effective, you cannot unfortunately be, you know, <laughs> driving around all over Mexico <laughs> and teaching wherever you can. Um, how is this changing your plans with travel? What what do you have looking forward to in that sense? Sure. Yeah, so over the breaks this year since I was in Mexico, fortunately, I went to Ecuador over Christmas and New Year's, um, got up to Cotopaxi, which is the biggest mountain in my life. I believe it's 19,000 feet or just under 19,000 oh, wow. feet. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I got into Costa Rica, another easy country to visit over our February break. And now looking forward to the, the summer, which is uh, two weeks, less than two weeks from today. We'll be on summer break, almost done. Um, looking at going in Mexico is easy, obvious to visit. Um, close, cheap. So looking at going back down to Mexico and then Peru is a country I have my eye on. Peru and Bolivia over uh, over summer break. A lot of countries that I love to go to, whether it's in Asia or the Himalayas or um, you know more remote countries are just not taking flights. They're just not letting people in yet. So uh, Latin America is fortunately a little bit more open. Uh, I check these AIDA, I-A-T-A, travel COVID maps that are really good on updated conditions for what you need to get into countries all over planet earth. And so I check those on a weekly, if not daily basis and looking forward to, uh, most likely joining. If a friend can join me, that's great. If not, I'll go on my own to, to Peru for, for several weeks and possibly Bolivia and then Mexico, um, planning as well. So, um, like the Cordillera Blanca are some of the biggest mountains, some of the most beautiful mountains in the world in central Peru that I've never been to. Um, Cusco and Machu Picchu and Lake Titicaca are more famous, but if I have a friend coming, we might go down that way, even though I've been there once before. And then Bolivia with the Uyuni salt flats, the kind of these really unusual, enormous salt flats where Instagram <laughs> loves to have people that, you know, take their pictures of a toy dinosaur in front of them or something eating them. It's uh, easy to make these obstacle illusions out there. And Bolivia's got a really cool um, capital city of La Paz, which is the highest capital in the world. I think it's right around 10,000 feet with different summits that you can get to that are really high um, right outside of La Paz. So um, if I can you know, speak Spanish, be in a country that's fairly inexpensive, hike, uh, get in without too many uh, serious complications and just take a negative COVID test, have someone join me. Um, that, that checks a lot of boxes. So I'll probably be in Latin America for, for the majority or at least half the summer, I would imagine. So, sound, sounds like you have some things to do then. You, you, you definitely <laughs> got a plan, uh, at least the, 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 the bones of one. So um, it's not going to be, you're not going to be sitting around, that's for sure. Yeah, sitting around is... Uh, not really high on the list right now. When you work hard, you want to play hard. That's what my dad always said from growing up. And, you know, we work our tails off, you know, as your wife or anyone who's a teacher. Like, if you're doing it right, you're putting in a lot of effort and you're giving, giving your heart and soul every day to the kids. And I just like to keep that uh, teacher knob, if you want to say turned on high and just plug it into adventures and 
you know, Jason, how many other people you've had that, you know, are teachers and adventurers. It seems like it's a, a good profession that gives you around three months a year and weekends clearly to, you know, go after your passions. And so, um, yeah, sitting it is, around. It is good for that maybe reason. Not, maybe not so much this summer. <laughs> Well, well, let me ask you this, you know, uh, just as a kind of going back to Mexico, I meant to ask this, but we, we can wrap up right after this. Um, you know, you, you've been to so many countries, um, every country except two, literally, and you'd been to Mexico so, so extensively. How do you keep it fresh in your mind in the sense of revisiting some of these places that you've been to before? Is it just knowing there is so much you, you will never see on that first or second or third visit? There's so much to always discover. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I've gone to all but two, so 195 countries in the world. But when you think about how much there's still, and I still have so much left to see, even within California, where I've spent, you know, almost every year of my life, except for six years teaching abroad and a year or two in college and in the South. Um, but there's so much to see. I mean, I go back to Mexico and I've lived there three times now for two or two and a half years total. And um, there's there's new towns, there's new festivals, there's places that have beautiful waterfalls. There's If you do research, there's just so much more to see than, uh, let's say, Peru, Machu Picchu, Cusco, Lima, Lake Titicaca. I mean, that's like everyone's standard 10-day trip and kind of what I did the first time. But this time I'll go back and explore different regions. I mean, Peru is just a vast country. Once you get past the initial what you want to see for your first one or two-week trip, you do a little bit of research. You know, I got friends, thankfully, from all over the world, from you know, on WhatsApp or the you know travel that I met along the way, and and so you do a little more research, and you pick another area or region in these countries. I mean, picture coming to the U.S. as a foreigner, you've been here for a month. Like you could totally pick another region of our country. We know how vast the U.S. is between you know Florida, California, the Rockies, the Northeast, you know, the national parks, Alaska. I mean, you can just find new corners of our country to explore for ages. And, and, you know, most countries that are a little bit bigger, not just the tiny ones, but a little bit bigger, like a Mexico or Brazil or Peru. And you can go back to multiple times and feel like you've had a completely different experience. The people will shape your trip. I'll choose different locations to go to for the most part. Um, but I can totally expect to have a different experience going to somewhere like a Peru or Mexico. Cause I'll, I'll do some research and then be totally open to meeting people and trying new foods and, and a different season, different year, different perspective and different company maybe along the way that will make it feel like it's brand new for me well said you're right it's it's in, in coming back home each time i'm sure you just see new things every time a new lens a new way to new perspective uh, which is maybe frustratingly endless <laughs> across the world <laughs> you know, hiking 14ers you know twice three times it's like you know it's great every time you could do it forever and it's still wonderful um it's the beauty and the challenge you have as, as someone that explores the world. But, uh, well, Brian, was there anything else you wanted to share? Is there anywhere people can, can follow you, reach out to you, um, if you're open to that? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to share. I mean, that's my life is, I think, um, you know, most adventurers would tell you as we do these things, but I try not to do it selfishly. You know, I, I try to share with 170 students in my classroom every day and um, on Instagram, fairly active at the.world.hiker, the.world.hiker. Um, on YouTube, The World Hiker, and Facebook, The World Hiker. Thanks to my students for most things that I come up with. They're the reason why I created the name. Like, oh, you love to travel. 
and you love to hike. What about the world hiker? When I asked him for the name of what I <laughs> saw on uh, you know, social media platforms a few years ago, and so far, so good. I still like to hike, and I still like to travel, so I haven't had to, ever had to change it too much. And yeah, I make quite a few YouTube videos as well, which um, you know, in the class, 50 hours a week, try to get out one a week or maybe one every other week and you know put up recent ones on climbing the two highest peaks in Mexico or running across the Grand Canyon or running to the top, which some people don't know of El Capitan. And so um, we'll have lots of trails in the U.S. and lots of ones in other countries from Turkmenistan to Iraq to you know the Saharan Desert to Nauru, the least visited country in the world. I've got videos on my YouTube channel, The World Hiker, on all of these and happy to help. I usually wake up every day to to a, a message or two on Instagram or Facebook for someone wanting to try something. And, you know, I'm happy, happy to help and share. And that's why we do these things. That's why we teach, you know, to be able to inspire others. So that can come from students, non-students, anybody happy to help if everyone, you know, anyone has a question or wants to reach out. Appreciate you being back on and sharing just, just what you've been doing the last year and your excitement, your passion uh, with not only your students, but with us. Uh, and yeah, you're, you're welcome to be on the show anytime you, you've, you've probably got about a hundred episodes worth of information <laughs> that you've seen personally. Uh, so yeah, th- another fantastic episode. I'm excited to get this one out. And I want to thank you for having me. And I think I might've mentioned on the last podcast, but I'll give you a couple examples of where I've listened to, to Mason sharing his <laughs> stories and I've listened to the adventure sports podcast going across the Sahara desert on like 130 degree days where literally if I didn't tune out some of the world and, you know, the border crossings, I might've gone crazy. I've listened to it um, in Northern Pakistan when hitchhiking, hitchhiking across uh, hundreds of miles in Northern Pakistan. And, uh, you know, in the last year when life has felt somewhat um, isolated and remote and uh, you're by yourself all the time, you're your show is is just inspirational and it's something that I've listened to and gotten a lot of uh, comfort and companionship when you get to hear the stories. And I know you say it, you get to speak with interesting people, but I know it's work behind the scenes to make these things happen as a teacher. People see my six hours in the classroom, but they don't see the other three or four hours of emails or, you know, fixing or grading or preparing. So I know it's work and, uh, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing it. It's helped me out a lot, and I know it blesses a lot of other people as well. Brian, I I still find that so hard to believe people listen to this. They do. I mean, I see the numbers, you know what I'm (laughs) saying, but I I don't – you never know, and I see the places, and that's so incredible to hear. So I I really appreciate that. But, hey, if it can inspire anyone to keep going out there, just to get them through a difficult Mm -hmm. situation or time – Man, it's totally worth it. Totally worth it on my end. I know, and then I know it's the same teaching. You know, all that work is so worth it when you get to see one one student progress. So mm-hmm. appreciate it. You're um, doing it, especially the last <laughs> year. We've needed it. As <laughs> many running clubs or gyms or you know marathons open, so we've needed it. So thanks for absolutely. Keeping it. it is finally opening up, and we can get back out there. <laughs> but well, Brian, let me let me jump back and work myself. I know you got to as well. Have a great rest of your day, and, and I'll let you know when this comes out. Uh, thank you, Mason. Appreciate it. Thanks yes, for having me on. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. 
And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.